Good morning. Good morning. It is a joy to be here, to be alive, to be able to worship our God who is worthy of praise. Um, if you've been here for a little bit, um, when I've been having the privilege to preach, I've been able to preach on our gospel identity and thinking through aspects of who we are, who Christ has remade us to be, and thinking through our gospel identity as a family of servant missionaries. And so we've covered our gospel identity as family, our gospel identity as servants, and today we're going to think through our gospel identity as missionaries. To do so, uh, let's just look to the Lord once more in a word of prayer as we dive into this topic in Scripture. God, we worship you. How we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing your word to us. But God, we need your help to understand your word. And we need your help to apply your word as well. And so God, we entrust this time to you. We ask that you would do your work, your will in our lives in transforming us and to live out who you made us to be in Christ. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, I want us to consider this question. Why are we still here? Why are we still alive? So notice, I'm asking you, why are we still here? And not just why are we here, right, to glorify God, but why are we still here after God saves us? One good follow-up question to help us answer this question is, what will I as a Christian, or what will we as a church, no longer do once we get to heaven? Well, the answer is we will no longer evangelize. We will no longer have the opportunity to tell other people about the gospel of Jesus Christ once we get to heaven. We will no longer be able to gather new worshipers of God through proclaiming the gospel to them. So with that said, brothers and sisters, why are we still here? I hope the answer is clear. One huge reason why we are still here as Christians, while we're still here as churches, is to be missionaries. To be missionaries who evangelize, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to others, and to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Disciples who will increasingly live out their gospel identity in the context of the local church, Christ's body. In essence, we are still here because of God's great commission. So here's where we're headed. The main call for us today. The main call for us today is for us to live out our gospel identity as missionaries. Alright, so that's what we're going to drive towards. We're gonna the main call is that we would live out our gospel identity, who God made us to be, as missionaries. And to help us, we're gonna ask the same four questions we did the last few times. First, who are we? Second, what do we then do? Third, why is it so hard? And fourth, why is it so worth it? So first, who are we? Who are we, according to Scripture? The only way to sufficiently answer this question with authority is to look to the God who created us, who reveals His Word to us that gives us the answer. Now let me just begin with a basic definition before we look at multiple passages of Scripture. So the the root of the words mission, the root of the word missionary is this idea of sentness, right? Or being sent ones. Okay, that's what missionary and mission is, is sentness or sent ones. They convey the idea of being sent by someone with authority for a specific task or mission. 
Okay, so with that in mind, let's look at several pertinent Bible passages. John 17, 18. Feel free to follow along. We're going to be jumping through a few of them. In John 17, 18, it's Jesus' priestly prayer. Jesus prays, as you, so he's talking about the Heavenly Father, as you, Heavenly Father, have sent me into the world, so I have sent them. So Jesus' followers into the world. Right? So that's Jesus' prayers for his disciples. As the Father sent me, so I'm praying that I'll be sending them into the world. So with that in mind, look at John 20, 19-23. In John 20, 19-23, we see Jesus commissioning his disciples, sending them to be his missionaries after his death. Right? So the context is, Jesus has died. Right? All the disciples were scared. They were hiding from the world. Then after Jesus resurrected, Jesus shows up and he says to them, Peace be with you. Then the text says, Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So, peace be with you is comforting them, and they were glad when they saw the resurrected Lord. But then notice this. Jesus didn't just comfort them and give them peace, right? so, so they can be glad as their own little holy huddle. Right? Notice it. He says in verse 21, Jesus says to them, Peace, again, peace be with you. And he says the prayer, as the Father has sent me, so Jesus was a first missionary, even so I am sending you. So we are missionaries in Christ, finding our missionary identity in our union with Christ by faith. That's who we are. But then in Matthew 28, a well-known passage of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. So think about what's happened. So John 17, he's prayed. John 20, he's met them in the room. Then Matthew 28, he sent them to a mountain in Galilee, and there Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the main thing is to make disciples... But how do you do that? Is, is going, as you go. Right? So as you are sent, as you're living out your identity as sent ones, you're being missionaries, you're making disciples. But then, in Acts 1.8, after Jesus had appeared to the disciples for 40 days, just in case they still didn't get their new gospel identity as missionaries, Jesus says to them, before he ascends to heaven, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will, and that's it, be sent to be my witnesses, sent to Jerusalem, sent to all Judea, sent to Samaria, and then sent to the end of the earth. And friends, that's precisely what we see, right, as the book of Acts progresses. The apostles began as the first missionary sent by Jesus, who was God's first set missionary. Then all those who believed in Jesus through the apostles' preaching, likewise received Jesus' power authority, and commission to be Jesus' continual sent ones into the world to proclaim his gospel. As an example, after the death of the first martyr in Acts 7, in Acts 8, we see that, quote, there arose a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except who? Except the apostles. So let's think about it. Because of the persecution... Only the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, while all of these new, there were new disciples, right? New Christians, new converts, all these new disciples of Jesus, they were scattered. And as they were scattered, what did these new Christians do? 
Acts 8, verse 4. Quote, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And where did they go to preach? They preached the regions of Judea and Samaria, which is what Jesus said would happen in Acts 1 8. And then as the New Testament continues to progress, we continue to see this glorious truth about our new gospel identity in Christ as missionaries. See, reconciled people sent with this gospel message. Now, just in case you're not convinced, let me just do one more passage. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. It says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Right? The oldest past, behold, the new has come. So we're new in Christ, we're new creations. Then verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And then notice the conjunction, and. It's not or. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, just to clarify it, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and, once again, not or, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, right, to deliver to others. Therefore, verse 20, we are all those in Christ who are new creations, we are ambassadors for Christ. Who are ambassadors? Those sent with authority from the king to do what? God making his appeal through us. And so we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I hope it's clear. Hold on, brothers, Christian brothers and sisters, Scripture is clear, crystal clear, regarding this aspect of our new gospel identity in Christ. It's no wonder pastor and theologian C.H. Spurgeon says this. He says, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Every single Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. You see, in Spurgeon's mind, the essence of what it means to be a Christian is that you live your life as a missionary, regardless of where you live. You're sent wherever you are, whether you live stateside or overseas, whether you're sent to a school, whether you're sent to a workplace, whether you're sent to a neighborhood, or whether you're sent to Somalia, or whether you're sent to Syria in the midst of ISIS, you are all, we are all missionaries. Sent and empowered by Jesus Christ, sent into this dying world, and sent on a mission to proclaim this life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ to then make disciples of all the nations. That's who we are. Which brings us to the second question, right? What do we then do? Second question, what do we then do? How are we then to live knowing our new gospel identity as missionaries? Now, since Jesus Christ is God's very first, and I think is the greatest sent one, it would be helpful to ask, what did Jesus do as the first missionary, as the greatest missionary? And what did Jesus commission his disciples to do as he sent them out as missionaries with his power? To help you, we're just going to look at three Ps. Three Ps. Jesus' process, plan, and priority. Jesus' process, plan, and priority. First, Jesus' process. What did Jesus do as the first missionary? I like 
Simple words, right? Four words helpfully capture what Jesus did. Love, know, speak, do. Right? Love, know, speak, do. Love. Jesus deeply loved all the people around him. I mean, that's clear if you read through the Gospels. Jesus was not prejudiced, right? Jesus wasn't prejudiced based on ethnicity. Jesus wasn't prejudiced based on socioeconomic status, career prestige, reputation in society, their age, their gender, or their relative goodness or sinfulness in life. He was friends with the sinners. Jesus loved his own people. Jesus loved his neighbors. Jesus loved even his enemies. And Jesus calls us to do do the same as his sent ones into the world. We are to deeply love all the people around us as Jesus has loved us sacrificially. And second, love, then know. We are to know them. Love, know. And the huge difference, though, between us and Jesus, right, is how we come to truly know people from the heart. The people whom we love. Right? As both fully man, fully God, Jesus already knows people completely. From the inside out, from their heart. The text in John says Jesus knows what is in man. That's why Jesus was often able to quickly move on to the third word in this process so quickly, right? To speak. To speak heart-penetrating words to people. But in contrast, I think none of us are like Jesus in being sovereign. Right? We don't know who people truly are from the heart unless we do what? We spend time with people and we talk to them. We ask questions, right? So question, anybody here ever have problems with prejudices or assumptions? Right? The problem of assumptions about other people that were completely wrong. Well, I have. Anybody here ever mistakenly assume another person's motive for doing something that was completely wrong? Well, I have, and I think a lot of people have, right? So for us to truly know what is in another person's heart, we need to actually spend time with people and then ask them questions to truly know them, who they are from the heart. But then as we increasingly know people whom we deeply love, then we can, third word, speak. Open our mouths to speak more poignantly the unchanging, fully relevant gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Now notice, speaking is the heart of Jesus' process as missionaries. Speaking, Mark 1, 14-15, we see Jesus begins his ministry, and the first thing he does is proclaiming the gospel of God. Saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Throughout the gospel, Jesus preached in synagogues, Jesus preached on mountainsides, Jesus preached next to rivers and lakes, Jesus preached in homes, Jesus preached the gospel wherever he went, as he went. And Jesus preached the gospel not only publicly to crowds, but Jesus also preached the gospel individually to people, individual people he interacted with. And if you read through the gospels, you will see that when preaching to individuals, Jesus often begins and emphasizes certain aspects of the gospel that speak very poignantly to a heart issue that Jesus knows is in a man or a woman. For example, in just two chapters, John 3 and John 4, In John 3, Jesus talked to Nicodemus, a Pharisee. And because the Pharisees put so much hope in their physical birth, their physical lineage, 
What did Jesus speak to him about? He spoke to him about the necessity to be spiritually born again. But then just one chapter later, John 4, with a Samaritan woman at the well, because Jesus knew she was looking for something to satisfy her thirst, right? Whether physical thirst or sexual thirst, relational thirst, or a relation to worship, Jesus didn't speak to her about being born again. Jesus spoke to her first about living water and true worshipers centered on him. Same gospel, but he's beginning differently. He's speaking pointingly to a heart issue that he knows is in that person. You see, Jesus loved people. And Jesus actually knew who they were. And that's how Jesus spoke the gospel clearly, pointingly, relevantly, publicly, and privately to people. Love, know, speak. And last word, do. Love, know, speak, do. Every time Jesus spoke the gospel to people, Jesus called them to follow him. Right? They had to do something. They had to follow him. You see, Jesus taught his disciples to do, how to live a new life solely for the glory of the kingdom of God. And in the Great Commission, Jesus is clear that we are to go not just to make converts. Right? What are we to make? We're to make disciples. Teaching them to do, right? Teaching these new disciples to do, to observe all that Jesus commanded. Okay, so Jesus' missionary process was love, no, speak, do. Love, no, speak, do. And he sends us to do the same. Okay, now that we know Jesus' process of how to live all of our life as missionaries, let's consider Jesus' plan. What was his plan? In Mark 6, Jesus called his 12 disciples, began to send them out two by two, gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Then they went out two by two and proclaimed that people should repent. Luke 10, Jesus appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Okay, so even while Jesus was here on earth doing gospel ministry, listen, there is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian, right? As a lone ranger missionary sent by Jesus. Furthermore, in the Great Commission, Jesus calls his disciples to go and make disciples, and then what? To go straight into teaching? Teaching them to observe everything he commanded, just doing one-on-one discipleship? But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus calls them to make disciples, and then first, we often miss this, to baptize them. I mean, what's the significance? Well, as the New Testament progresses, God is clear that all those in Christ are baptized into his body. Right? And it's not just Christ's universal body and church, but they're baptized into its visible expression, which is the local church. So in Acts 2.41, after the first sermon, all those who received the word were then baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Then Acts 2 verse 37, we see that the Lord was adding to, notice the the description, their number. Right? It wasn't the Lord was adding to the general number being, of being Christians. No, it was adding to their number, not the universal number of saints, but to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So simply put, as people were saved, they were first baptized into membership of a specific, visible local church. I mean, even the great missionary Paul always went out with a team, never by himself. He had a team. He was always commissioned and sent by a local church. And then he did his missionary journey, and if you notice, he always went back to his sending church, the church at Antioch. 
And when the missionaries went and preached the gospel in a new area and people became Jesus' disciples, what did they immediately do? They immediately congregated them as local churches. And so that's Jesus' plan. Jesus' plan is to send forth his gospel to the nations. His plan has always been in and through the local church. The local church is the focal point of Jesus Christ's missionary plan. Now, thus far, we've considered Jesus' process and plan on how to live as missionaries. Lastly, for the second question, let's also consider Jesus' priority. Jesus' priority. In Mark 1, after Jesus began his public ministry of preaching the gospel, healing people, as you can imagine, his fame quickly spread everywhere. Then in Mark 1.35, we see that very early one morning, Jesus rose up while it was still dark, went to a desolate place to pray. Then in verses 36 to 38, we read in Mark 1, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. They found him and said to Jesus, Jesus, it's exciting. Everyone is looking for you. Right? You're popular. You're famous. But in response, Jesus doesn't say, All right, that's exciting. Let's just camp here in one place and let's build a megachurch. Right? Let's build a super large ministry here because everyone loves me here. Now Jesus said to them, after hearing, hey, everyone's looking for you. There's so many people. Let us go on to the next towns. Why? That I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. That is why in Romans 15, 20-21, Paul, who imitated Christ, Paul says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Beloved, Jesus' priority, which then led to Paul's priority, was the less reached, the unreached places. Right? That's his priority. The less reached and the unreached places. So, if Jesus' priority is all the nations which necessarily implies the need for missionaries to then be sent to the ends of the earth to proclaim this gospel question for all of us to seriously consider is this. What is preventing you? What is hindering you from making your priority the same as Jesus' priority? And what's preventing you? What's hindering you? I say this because do you know that only 10% 10% of the Christian workers are working among 90% of the peoples of the world. And so you have 90% of the people of the world, only 10% of Christians are working among them. Then if you narrow the statistics to people who are unreached, the figures are even more sobering. There's still an estimated 6,400 unreached people groups worldwide which still need missionaries to plant Christ's church among them. And 3,000 of them are not only unreached, but they're unengaged. So what does this mean? There's technical terms, but simply put, what this means to be unreached is this. It means that these people will be born, will live, and will die having never even heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they have no access to hear it. They know no church, and they know no Christian who can tell them that gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's what it means to be unreached. 
You are born, you live, and you die having never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're condemned to eternal damnation, and you never heard the message that can save you for eternal joy with God in heaven. And you have no access to hear this. Okay, that's what it means to be unreached. So 6,400 unreached people groups worldwide. And most of these unreached people groups are located in what is called this 1040 window. 10 degrees and 40 degrees latitude from North Africa to Asia. Yeah, that's a 1040 window. Now, within this 1040 window, even though they have most of the world's unreached peoples, even though two-thirds of the world's population just lives in that one little window, even though this area is where the heart of Islamic, Hindu, and Buddhist religions reside, even though eight out of ten of the poorest of the world's poor and during the world's lowest quality of living live there, even though all these things are true of this thing called the 1040 window, yet only 8% of the world's missionary force goes there. And if we look at the budget of American churches, only 0.01%. That's 0.01% of the income of the world's Christians. So the money we make, only 0.01% of that money is invested in this area. I mean, I could go on with many more sobering statistics, but I hope you get the point. I mean, as an illustration, suppose you knew that your job was to be a babysitter. I know a lot of people that's not exciting, but just imagine, right? So you knew that was your calling. I'm called to be a babysitter. And you saw one family with one grown child and two babysitters already. And then you see another family here, and they just had newborn octuplets, right? And they have no babysitter to help them. I mean, which one would you prioritize being a babysitter for? I mean, I think the answer, hopefully, is a no-brainer, right? But yet, this no-brainer decision is not the one most Christians and most churches make. I think, beloved, for so many of us, our priority as set ones, our priority as Jesus' ambassadors, as Jesus' missionaries, our priority is not Jesus' priority. So then the question is, what are we going to do about it? What is we as Christians, what is we as churches going to do about it? How are we going to regularly repent and pray that God would align our missionary priorities with Jesus Christ's missionary priorities? Now for many of us, we could probably confess, right, that living out this missionary aspect, this missionary aspect of our gospel identity is really hard. Which brings us to the third question, why is it so hard? And let's think through this. Why is it so hard for so many of us to live regularly, right? To live our lives in practical, specific, real ways as missionaries sent by God. I'm sure you could think of many more, but let me just bring up three of them. One reason why living as missionaries sent by God is so hard is because people are not like us. Right? People are not like us. You see, once we're born again, we have the Holy Spirit, right? This Holy Spirit gives us the gift of new birth. We now have new hearts with new desires to love and please God. But in contrast, those still in the world, they remain lovers of self, lovers of pleasure, lovers of the world, lovers of sin. Right? So honestly, it is often hard. It's uncomfortable. But right? if you or if we are regularly in a crowd or if we're regularly in a workplace that curses, Right, that thinks profanity is just the second language. 
Right? Every second word needs to include it. It's uncomfortable, it's hard to really be in a place that makes crude jokes, lives different lifestyles, elevates sinful things as good, treats sinful things lightly. It's oftentimes unsettling to be in places where people worship pride, immodesty, vanity, lust. They disdain things like modesty and humility. In essence, in very fundamental ways, people in the world are not like us. But then I think you also add in this homogeneous unit principle that not only operates in the world, but also in many churches, right? Where people, we like to be around people who are like us. Even in churches, there often seems to be a limitless number of ways where you can just take the church and break them down into little groups where people can just hang out with other people who are just like them in every way imaginable. And so given all these things, do you see how it can be really hard to call Christians to come out of their homogeneous bubble and not just to love and to know other Christians who are not like them, who also have Christ, but even more so to love, to know, to give our lives for non-Christians who are not like us in even greater ways, even more fundamental ways. But then a second reason why living as missionaries sent by God is so hard is because even when we take that step of faith and take that step of obedience to be in the world, but not of the world, to be in the world, people in the world are not just unlike us. They are also people who dislike us. And so not only are people in the world not like us, they also dislike us and often hate us. For example, John 15, 18-21, Jesus clearly warns his disciples saying, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. I mean, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will, not might or may, they will persecute you. All these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. I mean, there's many other passages that I can mention where God has repeatedly, clearly told us that as Christians, because the world persecuted, mocked, reviled, falsely accused, and killed our Master and Lord Jesus, we should not be surprised if the world does similar things to us. I mean, the world, the world has never liked anyone telling them that a certain lifestyle is sinful, is wrong. The world has never liked anyone telling them that they deserve hell and God's eternal wrath because of their sin. The world has never liked anyone telling them that there is only one exclusive way to be forgiven of sins and they can do nothing to earn it or deserve it. The world has never liked anyone telling them that they must then give up everything to follow Jesus as the only way. Therefore, because the gospel message itself offends people, who love the world, who love their flesh, who love their sin, even though we may build deep, loving relationships with people, yet when we actually open our mouth and share the gospel with them, many times people will dislike us. They will mock us. They will reject us. And in many parts of this world, they will kill us. And for those of us who don't really like that in our flesh, right? We don't like being made fun of. 
We don't like rejection. We don't like being disliked. We don't like being persecuted. And we probably don't like dying. Then living out our gospel identity as missionaries can be hard. But then a third reason why living as missionaries sent by God is so hard is because when we put our missionary identity sort of off to the side, and we focus on what I talked about last week, we live out our gospel identity as servants, guess what? People actually like us. Why? Because people in the world, they like good deeds more than good news. Right? People in this world, they like good deeds more than good news. And so the big part of us that that just yearns for people to like us, wants approval, we want acceptance. We're going to start giving people in the world only what they want and not what they need. And I think the tricky part is that many times we might throw in some religious lingo. To justify not opening our mouths to speak the gospel to other people saying, Hey, I want to make sure the door is open big enough for the gospel to be accepted. Or, hey, my service, my good deeds, is just going to allow people to see what living as a Christian is like. And if they like our deeds enough, then they may just end up believing as a result. And so once again, what happens is that we end up giving people in the world only what they want temporarily, not what they need eternally. We end up providing more service than the Savior. And we give people more just physical goods than the eternal God Himself. All in all, living out our gospel identity as missionaries is oftentimes really hard. But beloved, it's worth it. It's worth it. Which brings us to our fourth and final question. Despite all the difficulties, why is it also so worth it? Let me just give you at least two reasons. First, living as missionaries is so, so worth it because of the eternal value of souls. The eternal value of souls. In Luke 15, Jesus tells us three parables related to each other, all dealing with something that has been lost. Luke 15, and the progression of the parables and Jesus' comments at the end of each parable highlights the incomparable, the eternal value of human souls Infilling over animals and money. So verse 7, after the man called his friends, invited his neighbors together to rejoice with him because he found a sheep. Jesus then clarifies what he means by that. He says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven, not over a lost animal, but over just one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Likewise, in verse 10, after the woman called her friends to rejoice with her because she found some money, a lost coin, Jesus then clarifies once again, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of heaven, not because we find money, but over one sinner who repents. And then lastly, verse 32, the father explains to his older son why it was fitting to throw a huge party, celebrate, rejoice, saying, it was fitting to celebrate, be glad, because this your brother, a person of eternal value, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. That's why C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory, importantly writes, There are no ordinary people. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is with immortals whom we joke with work with, marry, or snub, or exploit. 
either immortal horrors bearing God's wrath for the rest of eternity in hell, or everlasting splendors remade into the radiant image of Jesus Christ. It's so worth it. I mean, our lives are kept securely in God's hands. So even if we go to the middle of Syria in the midst of ISIS, even if we lose our lives as missionaries, our souls are secure. But those whom we preach the gospel to, the people of eternal value, they are being born, living, and dying, having never heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they are worth, their soul is worth eternal value. That's the first reason why it is so worth it to give our lives to be sent ones as missionaries. But second, living as missionaries is also so worth it because of the eternal worth of God. The eternal worth of God. The eternal value of souls and the eternal worth of God. Friends, we were created to worship the eternal worth of God. And then, when we chose voluntarily, willingly, to exchange the glory of God for things in creation, which justly earns God's eternal wrath against us because of our sin, then God sent His Son, Jesus, to live the life of perfect worship that we did. And then to die on the cross for our sins, and then to resurrect from the dead to make us new creations to then worship God's eternal worth again. So we were created to worship, we were redeemed to worship the eternal worth of God. Worshiping the eternal worth of God is what the angels are currently doing without ceasing. And it is what we will be doing for the rest of eternity as well. And in Revelation 7, God gives us the picture of eternity. God is clear that there will be a great multitude that no one could number. And it's from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, all languages, and they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice. They're worshiping, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then all the angels standing around the throne, along with everyone and everything, fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Well, living out our gospel identity as missionaries, it is so worth it because we are calling sinners to behold, to delight in, and to be in relationship with, to worship the greatest being in the entire universe. Now, friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, We're glad you're here. I pray that you would see why your Christian friends keep inviting you to church. I want you to see why your Christian friends keep telling you about Jesus. Because not only is missionary part of our very identity, but it is part of our identity because your soul is of eternal value. And we want to invite you to experience and to worship the eternal worth of God. See, Jesus Christ is the only way for your eternal soul to be saved, for you to know and worship the eternal worth of God. How? Because as sinners, God is clear that what you and I and what all mankind deserves 
This is eternal wrath for the rest of eternity. But Jesus Christ came to the earth. He lived a sinful life. The sin, he lived a sinless life, the perfect life that we didn't. And then Jesus Christ went to die on the cross as our substitute, dying in our place for our sins. And then to show that his death was fully sufficient to defeat sin, Satan, and death, three days later, God resurrected Jesus from the dead. So that now, all because of Jesus, all because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, for any and all sinners who repent of our sins, who turn 180 degrees away from sin, and we turn to Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, our eternal souls are forgiven of all of our sins. And we're saved. And not only that, but we're gifted with eternal life to forever worship the God who saved us. The eternal worth of God for the rest of eternity. So friend, this is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. Now Christian brothers and sisters, this gospel, this good news is what saved us. This gospel is at the center of our call, our identity as missionaries. Because we're to delight in this gospel, we're to then live out the gospel, and then we're to then proclaim this gospel to others. Because people's souls are of eternal value, and the God who saved us is of eternal worth. So, beloved, let us live out our gospel identity as missionaries. Let's pray. God, we praise you, we worship you for saving us, for being all glorious, and then for giving us the privilege to be united with Christ and then to be sent ones as you have sent Jesus. So God, help us live out our gospel identity as sent ones, as ambassadors, as missionaries. And God, help us to love people, to know people, help us to speak your gospel to people, and help us to call people to do, to obey all that you've commanded in the context, in your plan of the local church, all for your glory. And God, we pray that you would be stirring up in the hearts of many people here to give up their lives for unreached peoples. People who are currently being born, living, and dying having never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, with no access to hear the gospel that we so treasure in our own lives. So God, would you send many to the ends of the earth so that eternal souls be saved and that people would worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.